Dr. Geneva Speaks. Thank you for tuning in to Dr. Geneva Speaks, where you'll hear amazing leaders from across the nation and around the world. Your host, Dr. Geneva Williams, a cutting-edge, transformational leadership coach, hopes and believes this show will enlighten, entertain, and inspire you to make a difference in the world. So listen up as Dr. Geneva Speaks. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another fabulous, fabulous show. I am just so delighted about uh, today's guest and the show and all the wonderful things we'll be talking about. As as you know, as, as my listeners, we talk to leaders all over the country, and for the past few weeks, I've been focusing on the great, terrific leadership that exists in Detroit, Michigan. And as I've said often, too many people around the country have a a mistaken or wrong idea about what's happening in Detroit. It's a a vibrant city. It's on the move. And it's on the move because, I believe, because of many game changers that we have in the community. And one of the uh, most fabulous, awesome game changers uh, that we have in Detroit is my guest for today, Tanya Allen. Now, Tanya is what we call a serial ideapreneur, and she's the president and CEO of the Skillman Foundation, and for 20 years she has centered her efforts on pursuing, executing, and investing in ideas that improve Detroit and reduce the plight and unfortunate situation of children, uh, particularly children who are underserved. Tanya has been uh, a driving force in so many different successful philanthropic community government initiatives and has what um, I believe is a unique understanding of philanthropic governance, strategy, and leadership. It's been my pleasure um, to watch her career and, uh, you know, just take note of the many accomplishments as uh, she moves forward as a great leader in Detroit. Now, in her current role, she uh, aligns the many complexities of public policy, urban revitalization, education reform, so that these ideas can come together to help improve the well-being of Detroit's children. She served as the architect of a uh, tremendous um, <clears throat> a good, what's called a good neighborhoods program, which was a 10-year, $100 million effort, and she orchestrated the development of a citywide education reform movement uh, called Excellent Schools Detroit, uh, which was a $200 million effort and resulted in 15 new college preparatory high schools, which is so important to the education landscape. She was named by Crane's Detroit Business as one of 40 under 40 to watch and and note, and she was one of the first Detroiters to receive the prestigious Marshall Memorial Fellowship, and, and 
this is one of the things that, you know, just proves what I said earlier about uh, how she really is a mover and shaker in Detroit. She was named as one of the Chronicle of Philanthropies, five nonprofit innovators to watch. She has a, um, she's a graduate of U of M where she holds both a bachelor's degree from U of M in sociology and a master's in social work. And before she joined the Skillman Foundation, she worked as in philanthropy with the Charles Mott Foundation and the Thompson Macaulay Foundation. And a special note, she founded, it was, she was, had the brain, um, power to think about and create the Detroit Parent Network, um, a parent organization dedicated to improving educational options for children. And we know how important parents are in the lives of children. So I could go on and on about her, but it is my pleasure to have her right here with us, and we'll be having conversation with her. And welcome, Tanya Allen. Well, thanks so much, Geneva. It's great to be on, and uh, I appreciate the kind words that you have said about me. But I could say the same things about you. You are amazing. Well, thank you so much. And uh, they may be kind words, but they're also true words. And as I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, I have watched your career, and I've seen you move and groove. And uh, you are a game changer, and I'm delighted that you're on. And I want to start right out, and of course I did talk about you, but I'd like to, you know, what what perhaps might I have left out about your career? Well, you know, let's talk about your, your childhood. You, your hometown is in Detroit. That is that right? That's right. Yep, I'm a native of Detroit, so, and uh, I have, you know, I feel like this – community, you know, has created me. I feel like I represent the represent Detroit, you know, the grittiness, the mm-hmm. kind of toughness, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. the kindness and the love that we show. Um, and so I am, you know, forever indebted to the city for all of the experiences uh, that I've had here. Mm-hmm. Now, I know in Detroit there's a there's a thing about east side or west side, where you grew <laughs> up and what neighborhood were you in. So tell us about your growing up in Detroit. Were you an east side or a west side? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I was both, and I was neither. So um, uh-huh. sometimes I talk about, uh, you know, my mother, uh, when I was growing up, my mother uh, worked in a factory, and um, at um, a point in my life, probably about, seven or eight or so, she ended up losing her job. And as a result of that, um, because the plant closed, there was a lot of instability for us um, until she was able to kind of create a path forward uh, for herself economically. Um, And so in the middle of that, um, there were were lots of moves. And uh, so often I'll talk about um, that, you know, my experience in Detroit, I went to nine different schools and I lived all over the city. Oh, so I don't okay. have a um, I don't have a, a particular place that I claim. Um, and I think it actually makes me um, 
different in the sense of um, thinking about everyone in the city and and understanding, you know, some differences and some opinions we might have of different parts of the community. Um, but it, you know, it just gives me a more global view of our city. And then I think the second it uh -huh. did for me in a lot of ways um, was uh, it helped me see inside of school buildings in different ways and to see the inconsistency uh, that was happening across the, the district. And I could see that even, you know, 25 years ago, um, which is a big problem in general for children. Uh, and the third thing is that it gives me this particular experience to think about how children are experiencing school, especially with the level of mobility that's happening. And then the last thing uh -huh. I guess I would say that I think is um, really interesting in, uh, for me is that I uh, had to get used to change really early in my life. So change uh -huh. doesn't scare me. Uh -huh. yeah. It actually, uh, you know, I feel most comfortable in change. So, um, you know, I, I understand how people respond to it and react to it, but it's a place of comfort for me. I very rarely get afraid. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I want to explore that uh, with you. Uh, but, but you know, something that you were saying, you you had a chance because you went to nine different schools, you had a chance to experience the diversity and difference in Detroit in the school. So what was schooling in Detroit like for you? What was the public school? Did, did you go to public schools? And if so, or... Wherever you went, what was your schooling experience in Detroit growing up? Yeah, so I, like I said, I went to nine different schools. They were all in Detroit public schools. Um, and okay. so as a result of that, you know, they were in different parts of town and, you know, different intents behind their work. You know, I uh -huh. – I, I, was always a pretty decent student, um, and there were some places where the environment was really conducive and I was an excellent student. There were some environments uh -huh. where the, the environments weren't that conducive, and I was an okay student. Um, okay. And, you know, I, you know, like some things that I think about distinctively is um, – is uh, when I lived on the northeast side of Detroit and the culture of that building and the culture of the students there, there was this notion there was not an expectation of success. Um, lots of kids that were there were always overaged in the classroom when I was in middle school. Um, and then there were other places where I um, – uh, where, you know, the teachers were extraordinarily supportive and wrapped their arms around um, and made sure I was engaged in extracurricular activities and there were places where I thrived. I was also in another classroom where, uh, you know, it was so disruptive you never really learned anything and the way that the teacher handled mm -hmm. it was by throwing erasers across the classroom um, mm -hmm. to get order mm -hmm. in the classroom. So, you know, you, it, I was able even then as a child to really understand that, like, my success um, is determined uh, by what is happening around me, the level of distraction that I have and the level of support and opportunity I have access to. 
And uh, my success also was determined by whether or not I was going to take advantage of that while I was in those, uh, you know, what I would take advantage and what things I would avoid. But that became really clear, and it also became really clear, um, you know, going from place to place, you could see that, you know, some schools were far outpacing other schools in terms of academic uh, curriculum and materials. Uh, so there were sometimes I repeated information and sometimes I had never seen information. Um, and, of course, that is all related to transiency, but it also is related to, I think, um, uh, the lack of kind of standard and expectations that we sometimes have with schools. We want to give schools autonomy. Um, uh, but we also want to have those high expectations. And then I also think it's about our teachers too, right? Um, so as much as I mm-hmm. love teachers and respect the profession, I also know that there is um, – I uh, heard a woman talk about this before, the scent of a teacher, S-C-E-N-T, the scent of a teacher. Okay. That students can okay. tell – they can smell whether a teacher has confidence in themselves, whether a teacher has confidence mm. uh, in you. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so, you know, I could sense from whether my teachers were, if they believed that I was capable or not, or if they mm-hmm. um, decided and, that I was not. And it was very mm-hmm. clear. And as a result mm-hmm. of that, as a student, I would respond to it. And I think that's, was it, mm. you know, I think that was true 25 years ago, and I think it's true today, right? I think it's very mm-hmm. true in mm-hmm. terms of the way students um, interact with adults uh, and understanding whether or not those adults really believe in them or not. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a, a teacher that you remember who uh, smelled good? <laughs> well, who, lots of folks, stands, right? Stands, That's great. Who, who stands, yeah, lots of folks. Out in your mind? Yeah, um, I'll tell you, um, there are two teachers, but, you know, because I move so much, I always never really remember the names too much, so that's that's awful. Um, But one one teacher actually um, was very instrumental for me because, uh, believe it or not, as a kid, I think maybe I was in sixth grade or fifth grade or something like that, she actually talked to us about code switching early in mm-hmm. my life. And uh, basically, she, you know, I had two teachers in the same building who actually talked about it in different ways. And it was basically about how you navigate the world, like how, where is home, how you talk at home, how you talk with the people who you love. And then mm-hmm. when you're not in those spaces, what's expected of you and how you're going to be fairly treated and how you had to switch your language and switch your behavior to be successful. Okay. Um, and so that was uh, a very interesting and um, pretty impactful for me because it was the first time personally that I was able to see outside of um, a bubble and that there were different expectations out of the bubble of my neighborhood. Um, and then the second teacher um, was a woman by the name of Miss Rankin, uh, who went to um, who taught at Cast Tech, um, and uh, Miss Rankin just had extraordinarily high expectations. 
there was no question about her expectations of what we would do, how we would think and be critical thinkers. And so Mm -hmm. she really just pushed us um, to be critical thinkers in a um, Socratic way. And, um, and I think that, um, that training has been really useful for me um, as a professional. Mm-hmm. In what way, Tanya? Well, you know, I, I often, uh, you know, when things come to me, I, you know, I'm always posing questions and trying to understand and figure out how there are connections and what there are deeper meanings behind some of the things that I see and understand. Um, and mm-hmm. I think um, that gives a level of depth um, that goes, you know, that that's much needed in our work. I think in a lot of the work that we see and a lot of the things that we do, it's so easy um, to look at the surface and to make a distinct decision or an analysis based on that. You can look at data and you can make a ton of decisions. You can look at the school, the scores in Detroit, right? We have the... Um, mm-hmm lowest mm-hmm. performing um, standardized test, you know, lowest, lowest standardized test in the country for our students. And so it could tell you that we just have really awful, I mean, you know, an, a, a surface analyst could say you, we got really awful students and we got really awful teachers and we got really awful schools. Um, uh-huh. But you, when you go deeper than that, you understand that this isn't, uh, we got a really awful system that's creating an environment that actually allows our students to not be able to um, succeed and perform, and that we have a system that is really uh, handcuffing or um, um, holding back our teaching staff from being equipped to really educate, right? And that in that Mm -hmm. there are some cultural challenges that are happening and that are being developed because of these broken systems that are um, harder to get over than just fixing the system. So you begin to look at problems not as a technical problem, but more of a, an adaptive challenge. And to think about okay. it and using, you know, that kind of um, ability to think deeply about those kinds of things. It's, it's helpful, I think, and um, and it's insightful. And and uh, and not that I think that I'm solely insightful, but I feel like I, I I'm a good listener, and I hear people, and I'm trying to understand and pose these questions, and not just um, you know discover the solution and try and run with that because I've discovered a lot of solutions and. Most of them don't work. <laughs> um, but what I'd like to say is that, you know, um, what I try to do is, you know, make the best decisions with the information that I have um, and uh, and that as I get better information, I'm going to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. So, so you went through, you know, nine different schools and public school K through 12 and and then you went to U of M, and you went into social work, sociology. To tell us, why did you make that decision to to go the way of social work? Yeah, well, I um, I uh, when I was in high school, I read uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, and it was mm-hmm. a pretty life changing um, read for me. Um, it uh, really just opened my eyes to kind of like the systematic oppression um, and also the ramifications of so many decisions and the legacy of slavery, um, in particular on African Americans. And so 
I uh, view my role in life, um, I just had an affinity to trying to figure out how I fix something or how I help support people who want to fix things for the people that I care most about and the people that look like me. And the closest uh-huh. thing that they had in higher education at the time that would allow me to do that um, and to understand it was uh, social work and, and public okay. health. And so I tried to bring okay. the two of those things together um, when I went uh-huh. to the University of Michigan to try and, you know, really understand and figure out, like, how I could build the skill sets that would be helpful to me to kind of navigate it navigate and create change. And then the last thing, I guess, you know, I was um, talking with uh, someone, we were talking about the data um, that came out recently that said that, you know, African Americans in general go into industries and fields that are less um, lucrative than other um, others, right? They tend to go into fields that pay less. Um, uh-huh. And uh, And, but I also, but I think that's, that spin on the story is the wrong spin. The spin is is that African Americans tend to go into fields that they believe are going to more broadly help their community, and those uh-huh. fields tend to be um, paid less. That's a different uh-huh. story and a different spin on it. And I just think you know, uh-huh. I too, in that way, you know, I my um, when you come out of I think um, African American tradition. African-American tradition tells us that we have responsibility to the whole, not just to ourselves individually. And um, both of the degrees I studied um, were about uh, creating a path or some kind of way of helping the whole, that it was my responsibility as a a first-generation college student um, to do that. Uh So as you read... um, Malcolm X, and, uh, you know, it just really struck a chord in you. Did you, was that the time when you made a decision that you were going to be a leader? Yeah, I think I, I actually think I made a decision probably about when I entered college. Yeah, I, um, uh, I, I don't know if I, decided it or it just felt like I had to um mm-hmm. and um and but that was it like I you know I spent a lot of time uh curating kind of my leadership skills <laughs> while I was in college mm-hmm. um okay. and uh and, and but I think you can do that anywhere right like you don't have to be in a leadership role to curate your leadership skills well say a little bit more about that what do you mean when you say you spent some time curating your leadership skills. What did you do? Tell us about that. Well, you know, I um, work with lots of student organizations and uh, and spent a lot of time on student issues. And so in that process, you learn lots of things. You learn how to listen. <laughs> you learn how to speak up. You learn how to um you know, navigate tensions. You learn how to work with people who don't like you. You learn how to um, identify issues you want to work on and make them a compelling issue, uh, not just for yourself but for others, and to speak uh, in lang- with language that um, is going to resonate with people. Um, and, 
you know, and to not be judgmental. Um, so those were lots of things that I learned in student organizations by just, you know, being the president of organization, you know, running budgets or um, thinking about, like, how you cast the vision and how you engage people um, who care about an issue but may not necessarily be spending time on it. So those were all mm-hmm. things, you know, and when I say curate, I mean, like, you know, I learned a lot of different things, and there were some things that uh, I did that I didn't do well. So they had to come off the floor, right? Like they had to come out <laughs> of that work. You you don't uh-huh. want to do those things anymore uh, because you know that they don't have the kind of impact that you want to have or they are working um, uh, counterproductively to the efforts you're trying to do and so you you learn from a lot of mistakes in that work. You know it's it's interesting you talk about uh, mistakes because as I've chatted with leaders like yourself, um, they always seem to say that the most um, you know the biggest learnings that they had were from their mistakes. H- how do you? find that do you do you find that the things that you know you've learned the most how you've grown the most come in fact from your mistakes um i i would say it's both um you know i i think that every success and failure create learning opportunities and i mm-hmm believe that I try to take advantage of the learning opportunities in every setting. So naturally, you know, my kind of, my disposition is to be a learner in general. And so um, I feel like I, you know, when I fail, I try to fail forward, right? Like I'm trying to fail with this notion Mm -hmm. of how I learn and how it's going to take me and move me forward. So I do think Mm -hmm. about that. um, And I do, you know, and I, Use you know I kind of go at it with uh, in looking for the unvarnished truth like I don't um, make excuses for myself, um, but at the same time I also learn tremendously from the successes um, and so in those successes what you're learning is well, at least what I have learned is about what my strengths are and um, and really focusing and emphasizing and building on those strengths. You know, I think a lot of times we are often, um, it's far easier to, uh, it's far easier to look at our mistakes and try and figure out how we build that competency or that capacity to, uh, to kind of, you know, cover our deficit. Um, And I think that that's important, but I also think it's even more important to um, layer in on your strengths and make sure that you're spending time on developing your strengths and making the, turning those strengths into more of an expertise. Uh, And I Uh think you do that. Uh Like you, you are excellent Uh at the things that you do really well, you do it masterfully. And that's because you, and my assumption is, is that you spend time on practicing the things that you do well. And I, the last thing I guess I would say about this is that um, the Harvard Business Review did this article about the executive athlete. And it kind of reminds Uh me of that is that, you know, um, if executives were to take lessons from athletes, then we would train in a different way and we'd focus on the different things. And um, one of the things that I would say is is that athletes 
focus a lot on um, perfecting what they're strong at so that they're always, they can mm-hmm. always deliver that with consistency mm-hmm. and fidelity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I've learned as many lessons about focusing and on that and honing that and getting better, Not all, never assuming mm-hmm. you're an expert, but always building expertise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That whole idea of practice. Because that's mm-hmm. what um, you know. Taking that the athlete analogy, um, you find athletes practicing, practicing, practicing all the time. I remember as my uh, husband who loved golf, and uh, he would always be practicing, <laughs> and he would, you know, tell me that I couldn't really love golf or play it because I never practiced enough. And you'll find people who are good at, you know, what they do in athletics that constant practicing. And um, so, so I hear what you say. That's a wonderful, wonderful analogy, a piece of information. So, so Tanya, you know, one of the things that I know that you were very instrumental in is starting this movement called Detroit Parent Network. And, any parent who's had children, um, you know, and taking them through K through 12 education, working with them, uh, sometimes, you know, struggles with the whole educational arena. T- tell us why did you, why did you found, why did you start Detroit Parent Network, and what was behind all of that? Hmm. Well, the the theory behind this was that. Um, that during the, the theory behind it was really simple is that we believe that uh, parents were an untapped resource in our community and um, and that if really mobilized and energized that they could be powerful uh, change agents on behalf of their children on behalf of their schools and behalf of their neighborhoods and more broadly for the city, but that we had to help them and equip them. We had to support them and we had to give them opportunity. Um, And what we found from that work, uh, and then, oh, the second thing I would say is that um, at that time in Detroit, we were really having a debate on whether choice was necessary. So we had a charter law, charters were coming up. Uh, and part of what was happening was that um, people were trying to force parents into boxes. You either are a charter person or you are a uh, district person. And my perspective uh-huh. on this is that parents should be neither. Parents should be children people, and they should choose mm-hmm. whatever the best school option is for their child. And I wanted to make mm-hmm. sure that they had the tools to be able to do that um, while navigating the kind of political pressures and the political language that was going around, um, some that was true and some that was not true. Um, and I think that those pressures were on both sides of it, on the charter movement or choice movement and also on the um, traditional public school movement. And then the last thing was that in the debates around education in particular, um, everybody had a representative at the table. You know, so at that, during those times, you had, you still had the unions for the, for the uh, 
principals, and you had the unions for the teachers, you had the unions for uh-huh. the support staff, you had the unions for the uh-huh. boiler operators. Literally, uh-huh. everybody had a union, right? Everybody was unionized. Everybody had a representative and a person at the negotiating table for their interests. And I often was just struck by how um, at those tables there was never a negotiating power for kids and that the only people who I believe that you could truly entrust the best interests of children for and at tables like such as those were parents and that we had to equip parents to be able to do that. Um, and uh, and that if we could figure out how we could connect and weave parents together, that I believe that they could be a powerful force for change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was what was behind this Detroit Parent Network. Has it worked? I think it has. I think... Mm-hmm. I think it has in a lot of ways, and then I think that there are some places where we can um, strengthen, right? Um, so one, I would just say that um, many of the parents that have been in Detroit Parent Network and who are in Detroit Parent Network are parent leaders across the city, and they're leading in all kinds of ways. Um, and so many of them started off with small leadership roles, and many of them started off with no leadership roles. I remember lots of parents who would come into our leadership training class and we would say, what do you want to be a leader in? And I was always struck by the number of parents who would say, I want to be a leader in my home. Uh, And they were trying to build their leadership skills so that they could model for their kids the kind of lives and expectations they have for each other. So I think that Detroit Parent Network has you know, been the impetus behind tons of leaders. And I think, you know, um, the work of Yusuf Shakur, um, we supported him in the very beginning. We um, supported many of the leaders who ended up creating Detroit 300. Um, You know, so there are so many organizations uh, and men, particularly in Detroit, who are doing um, important grass work, roots work, that came out of Detroit Parent Network. And I think the same is for many of um, the parents who are in some of our schools who are leading parent groups in these schools. You know, many of them have gone through training from Detroit Parent Network, and they're trying to do their part at their individual school. Um, I think uh, that, you know, Detroit Parent Network in some ways has been really powerful and influential on public policy and, you know, laying Uh out a public Uh policy agenda. And I think lastly, they've been a normalizer in helping parents figure out and choose and, and getting good information around schools. And so much so that, you know, Detroit Parent Network has been uh, hired by both uh, Detroit Public Schools and EAA and maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 to 12 other school districts, um, some traditional districts, some charter districts across the region to help them think through and redesign their parent engagement strategy. So in that sense, I think that, you know, the organization has been extraordinarily successful. And, but, you know, success doesn't come out without challenges and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly has been a force in the, in the community. And for any of our listeners, the EAA is the educational authority in, in Detroit that is handling um, some of the Detroit public schools uh, that have not had the best performance. Is that how 
is that a good description, Tanya? Or what would you say? Yeah, about it's. The a, I would the the other thing I would just offer. It's a it's equivalent to um, um, kind of these recovery um, or achievement districts that have been established that uh, that are designed to um, improve uh, schools. Um, who are low performing. So uh, uh-huh. it's uh-huh. one of those kind of statewide uh, lowest performing school district um, is what I would describe it as. Uh-huh. And so now you're head of a major foundation uh, in Detroit, the Skillman Foundation. And of course, you prior to that, you've had other philanthropic uh uh, experience with other foundations. So, what's it what's what's it like being head of a terrific foundation as a leader? What's it like? <laughs> well, it's um, humbling, right? Um, so, the Skillman okay. Foundation has a um, re- remarkable reputation, and um, my predecessor and mentor, uh, Carol Goss, um, just did took the organization tremendous strides. And so my responsibility as a leader is, one, is never to, you know, I never really want to um, darken our doorstep. And so that, you know, makes me sometimes a tad bit cautious uh, on certain things around protecting our reputation. Um, but mm-hmm. the second is is that because of the work that the foundation has done and deeply with residents and with people, um, I feel a, a deep responsibility to make sure that our organization reflects um, the realities of Detroit, the possibilities of Detroit, and of Detroiters. And so that's an um, interesting combination of trying to hold those three things together because they create tensions. Um, but uh, to make sure that we're articulating what we see as the realities and that, um, you know, we're making sure that people, not only are we investing in ideas that matter and they matter for children and that we're going to be results-oriented, but we also want to make sure that the people in Detroit, that we use our leverage to make sure that their voices are heard and understood. Um, So that was a bit of a rambling answer, but what I would just say is I, I find it to be, an extraordinary um, opportunity that ha- that gives me lots of um, leeway and a huge platform to work on issues that I care most about. Um, mm-hmm. But while I'm mm-hmm. doing that, you know, I find it um, I find a great accountability in to the leadership before, to my board, most importantly mm-hmm. to. Uh, the children and their families of the city of Detroit. And so I try to carry mm-hmm. all of those things together as the leader. Mm-hmm. And how does that work for you? How do you balance all of that, Tanya? What well, are the tips and strategies that you use? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know if mm-hmm. I'm anybody who could talk about balance. Um, but I think a couple of things. I mean, I think the first thing is is that, you know, I, I'm an aspiration, aspirational and inspirational person in general. Um, so I'm always, I always believe that we have the agency uh, as a community and that from our perch we can change the world. So, like, I, I just believe that, and I believe that as a foundation too. Um, but um, 
with that, you can easily slide into this uh, belief that um, you have to carry the world on your shoulders. And, uh, and so the first thing that I do in managing all of that is being really clear that I can't carry the world on my shoulders um, and that I can't carry Detroit on my shoulders, and neither is Detroit asking me to. And I think, you know, just being clear about that is helpful. I think the second thing for me is, um, you know, having a strong uh, um, spiritual life. Um, I'm a Christian, and so uh, having a strong prayer life and uh, having um, a center of gravity that is outside of myself is helpful and is good and focusing and, you know, just kind of reminding me of um, uh, a broader perspective than, than my own. And then I think third is, I work hard, you know, nobody, I always say, uh, you know, you might be smarter than me, you might be better looking than me, you might even be richer than me, but the one thing you can't do is outwork me. Uh, uh-huh. And and that's okay. not, I'm not suggesting everybody has to work super hard. I'm just saying don't ever let anybody outwork you, right? Like do as best uh-huh. as you can and, and to do that. And so I tend to, to work in that way, but I also am really clear that, um, in order to replenish, I have to mentally take a break. And so there are just certain things that I don't do. Like, I, you know, I, I, I will do them if I have to, but they're an exception rather than norm. I cut work off. I cut work off at home, and I cut work mm-hmm. off in, on the weekends. Now, I will break those yeah. rules and do different things, but that mental um, break is important to me, and it's I find that um, I can be physically rested, but if I'm not mentally mm-hmm. rested, then I'm not effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, Tanya, one of the things you work hard at, very hard at, is education. So I want to ask you, if you had a magic wand, mm-hmm. And you could wave it. And the result of your waving that wand would be awesome, dramatic change in education in Detroit. What would you use that wand for? Hmm. Um, I actually, I think I would use that wand um, with... um, I would use that one with our teachers. Um, okay. And I would use it and if I could just give some rationale behind it. And it's to um, strengthen our teachers. Um, and um, a couple of things I would do to be able to do it. One is um, provide them with the resources that they need. Um, two, um, compensate them fairly. Uh, and then the third thing would be um, to fundam- which I think is the most important, is to fundamentally um, change their expectations and their capacity to educate all kids, however they come. Um, I think part of our challenge in general in education is that we continue to work off of this rel- this notion of education, which is kind of a relic of the past is that, um, you know, if we know that kids aren't coming to us ready, then we shouldn't complain about 
kids aren't coming to us ready. It, we should be reorganizing ourselves as institutions to serve the kids as they come. And um, and then the last is I just think in Detroit um, related to this issue is that I you know I think that teachers have been so um, disrespected and I feel like they are so um, demoralized and um, and they have really been working in the worst conditions. And I mm-hmm. I think ultimately if you uh, and I use this word you know not literally but. But if you put broken adults in front of children, how do you ever expect that children will not be broken, right? Like, or that the product isn't going to come out right. So we have to make that investment in the adults um, that are in front of kids. And if we can make that investment there, then I really do believe that those adults can be transformative for kids. And so I would make the investment with the teachers because they have the most impact in the classroom. They have the most impact on students. Um, All of this other stuff are necessary conditions, but the real change is is at the teacher level. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, that's where the relationship is is most important between the teacher and the student in the classroom. And and back to your earlier comments, it seems that you would use your wand to make sure that all teachers have that scent that you talked about. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, and I yes. I would love yes. that for for that to be, because I think mm-hmm. you know at the end of the day, um, you know. Children are looking for adults to affirm them and to support them and to propel them, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. kids, all of us, you know, all all of our children at some point um, have had doubts. And if they haven't had doubts about who they are and what they're about, it's because their parents put it in them, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. you can put it in, put that in it as a parent, and your kid still isn't convinced, and they need these external um, uh, uh, affirmations to remind them um, that the challenges that they believe or they see to exist about who they are or their doubts um, are just temporary. And uh, and I, you know, I believe that teachers um, can do that, and I think. Um, you know, they can eliminate the kind of um, stereotype threat um, that exists for particularly kids of color and kids of color who live in urban areas. Mm-hmm. Well, Tanya, as, as we're winding down and we have just a few more moments, I definitely want to get your take on Detroit. So what's your prognosis? For Detroit, what's going to happen in Detroit, and what is it going to take uh, from a leadership perspective to make Detroit a great city? Hmm. Well, so my prognosis on Detroit is this: I believe that you know Detroit, you know, is going through a, the life cycle of a city. Um, and we've seen this, you know, in the United States, we don't really think about it that way. But, you know, in the late 18, uh, late uh, 1800s and early 1900s, we mostly, you know, around that kind of 20, 30-year period, we saw lots of cities who literally were burned down and came back and thrived again. 
Um, and mm-hmm. in the 1980s, we started to see this uh, same thing, a rebirth and life cycle of cities. When you think about New York City and Seattle and San Francisco and Boston, where cities literally were um, – uh, on their knees, you know, bankrupt, and then they came back, and they came back pretty thriving. Um, and I think that's the same is true for Detroit. I mean, I think that Detroit at one point was the richest um, city in the world. Um, we uh-huh. came to our knees, and our crash was a lot steeper uh, than uh, many of these other places. Um, but yet still, um we can come back, and I think we actually are coming back. Now, the challenge for us as a community, um, and and before I say that, uh, the last thing I would say is that when these cities come back, one of the things that's really interesting is that they generally are the hotbed of of our country's economy. And so Mm -hmm. that's an interesting perspective because thinking about Detroit is, will Detroit be like all of these other cities and really be a place where you're generating wealth and, um, and, and spurring the nation's economy in significant ways? And I actually believe that to be true for, the, for Detroit. Now, the challenge I think we have is do we recover like other cities or do we choose to recover differently? And what I mean by mm-hmm. that is if you look at all of those cities, they're highly segregated. And mm-hmm. um, okay. they are not inclusive, right? They don't have um, this inclusive recovery framework in which uh, they are uh, coming back in a way where everybody gets to participate in prosperity. And I think the opportunity for Detroit is that we can – redefine what recovery looks like in a city's comeback. Uh, And I think in order for us to do that, it's going to require intentional leadership about recovery. It's going to require us having to fix things like the public school system early enough so that the people who are coming out of that system can really prosper. Um, It's going to require for us to think about this as a generational play, that, you know, what we're looking at is that in 15 to 20 years, the city will be tremendously different, and that what we're doing right now is about preparing the people who will be in this city um, to really take advantage of that. Uh, And then the last is, I think, um, probably the most important, is I think that we have to have some um, truth and reconciliation Uh, That happens. And, you know, I often talk, I've been thinking a lot about this more recently is that we, I think we're going to have to take a page from the book of South Africa or Mali or other places where you've seen kind of like the civil, um, uh, civil uh, challenges in these places um, within these communities and that there is tons of legacy of hurt and pain and loss um, I think mm-hmm. that we are going to have to come face-to-face with that um, okay. if we really want to recover in a way and that if we really want our city to be inclusive, um, that people have to understand each other's perspective on that. Uh, so that, that's what I think that our leadership is going to have to help us do as a community um, if we're going to really be um, the city uh, that we all aspire to have. Mhm, mhm. Yes, and that's that's going to be a tall order, but I think we um, we're we're able to face it, particularly with leaders like yourself. So, what would you, in that whole scenario, that scenario, and in the future, as my last question, 
what would you what do you want your legacy to be, your leadership legacy in that whole scenario? What would what do you want people to say, Tanya Allen, and the impact that she had on this community? Um, well, I would love <laughs> if um, people would um, attribute to me that I won, um, was helpful in rebuilding the civic muscle in our community of people being able to dialogue and think about, to talk about um, tough issues in our community and um, and come up with solutions because we had um, the civic capacity to be able to do so. Uh, and that in that dialogue, everybody voices are heard and are contributing um, to what that solution looks like. Um, and then I think the second thing, obviously, is I I would love that um, that the work that I do will create um, the next generation of leaders for our community. You know, mm-hmm. that's why at the foundation we invest heavily in young people and we are investing in building their capacity to be leaders um, and to access opportunities because, you know, I believe in the power of our young people and I believe that they can fix fix these problems that we have um, if we equip them and give them the autonomy to do it. So I, you know, I probably never would be credited with it, but I, I think actually I would be happy if I never were. And it was that mm-hmm. the work that we did um, actually created and built the leaders that transformed and rebuilt our city. Mm-hmm. Spoken like a true visionary leader. Tanya Allen. Thank you. It it it, you, it it has just been um such a delight for me um to again once again not only chat with you but to 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 really listen to you because you you know you really think deeply about these issues and 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 you you really want to explore and you have explored all the various um ins and outs, but also, as I've watched you, you have an ability to draw people in to think deeply too so that that's an added gift, you know, not just being able to yourself as a leader think deeply about issues and reflect, but also having the ability to encourage and engage others to do the same. And that, that's truly a gift, Tanya. So I thank you on behalf of all Detroiters and every, all children, frankly, around the, around the country who I know profit and, um, uh, you know, gain uh, uh, those things that they need from your leadership. And I'm so delighted that you've been um, a guest with me tonight. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm just grateful that you would have me on, Geneva, and I appreciate your kind words. Okay. Thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. And to our listening audience, stay tuned for next time. This is me. And talk. Thanks for tuning in to Dr. Geneva Speaks. Dr. Geneva Williams, an expert facilitator and leadership coach, lecturer, and keynote speaker. For more information on Dr. Geneva, visit her online at www.drgenevaspeaks.com. 
That's drgenevaspeaks.com.